Amen. The scripture for this evening's message is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. The title of the message is, What God Saved You For. In this greeting to his readers we looked at this morning, verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Peter expresses his desire that they experience more of God's grace and peace through the increasing knowledge of God the Father and God the Son. After his greeting, Peter moves into what will be one of the primary themes in this letter. It's the theme of godliness. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the full knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these things He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to teach us what it is you intend us to hear in these words. God, please communicate loud and clear to the hearts and minds of your people that we may be transformed into the likeness of our Savior. We ask it in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Six or seven years ago, one of my close friends from my younger days had a court hearing. He was going to court and the judge was going to determine if he were eligible for parole or not. He was in prison. And he asked me if I would attend the hearing, so I did. Well, a few months later, he was indeed granted parole and released. I found out recently that as of March, he is back in prison in Texas. You know, I'd really like to ask him some questions. Did you think them setting you free meant you could just live any way you wanted to? Did you really think it was okay to just keep living the way you always did? I'd like to look at him and just ask him, didn't you know the reason they set you free was with the expectation that you would live a different life? A new, better life? Listen, if you're a believer, God has set you free from sin's prison. God has freed you from sin and death and hell. And you need to understand God didn't set you free so you could live any way you want to. You were set free to live a different life. A godly life. Yet there seem to be some people who call themselves Christians who seem to think that godliness for a Christian is really optional. It's like there are some people that think the way you live is not really critical as long as you believe in Jesus. That's what really matters. 
mean, you, you don't have to necessarily live a godly life as long as you believe in Jesus. Listen to me very, very carefully. If you think that way, you are dead wrong. You are dead wrong. For the Christian, godliness is not optional. Godliness is what God saved you for. You get it? God saved you for a purpose. That purpose is godliness. One of the primary reasons Peter's writing this letter is because there are false teachers in the church. They're not only living godless lives, they're promoting godless lives. They're actually teaching that how you live doesn't really matter. Peter describes these godless false teachers like this in 2 Peter 2, verses 14 and 15. Having eyes full of adultery and unceasing sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, they are accursed children, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. I don't know if you can tell, but Peter is condemning their godless lives in no uncertain terms. Peter wants his readers to know that not only does God intend them to live godly lives, he has given them everything they need so that they can live godly lives. The message of 2 Peter, verses, 2 Peter 1 verses 3 and 4 is this, God saved you so you could live a godly life. God saved you so you could live a godly life. In these two verses, I want to show you two realities regarding a godly life. And I think as we look at them, you'll see the message of these verses very clearly. Here's the first reality that I want you to see about a godly life. The power of God gives us what we need for a godly life. This is in verse 3. Here's essentially what we're saying. If you're born again, there's no excuse for not living a godly life because you already have everything you need for godliness. That's the message of verse 3. Now we're going to look at this verse in two parts. Here's the first thing I want you to notice in verse 3. The possibility of a godly life. Look what it says. His divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Now, the words life and godliness are not really intended to communicate two different things. They describe each other. We could see it like this. A life characterized by godliness or godliness of life. In other words, He's given us everything pertaining to a godly life or a life of godliness. Here's the question, though. What is godliness? What is it? Godliness at its most basic is beliefs and practices that demonstrate devotion to God. 
you might say it like this. It's a life that God would approve of or a life that would please God. And it says here, God's divine power has granted to us all that we need to live a life of devotion to God, a life that pleases Him. The verb has granted tells us that what we need to live a godly life was given to us in the past and we still possess it now. In other words, we already have it. We currently possess what we need for a godly life. And he says it was given to us by his divine power. Divine power is simply power that belongs to and comes from God. It basically means God's power. God's power has given us everything we need for a godly life. Now, I shouldn't have to tell you a godly life doesn't mean a perfect life. Not this side of glory. Right? You won't live a perfect life until Christ returns and you are made completely new into the image of Jesus. But even this side of heaven, you can live a godly life. You can live a life of devotion that pleases God. He says here, God's power has given you what you need to live a life characterized by godliness. Now, the second half of verse 3, what we see is the power for a godly life. God's power has given us what we need to live a godly life, but what is it that God's power has given to us? What is it God has granted the believer that enables us to live a godly life? Primarily it is this, He has given us the Holy Spirit. Think about it. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes to the truth of Scripture so we can begin to see and understand what a godly life looks like. Then the Holy Spirit of God gives us the desire to live a godly life. And finally, it is the Holy Spirit who empowers us to live a godly life. He's the reason we're able to do it because we couldn't do it in our own strength. Listen, the Holy Spirit of God isn't just a comforting presence for the believer to make us feel like everything's going to be all right. The Holy Spirit is an empowering presence in the life of the believer. Isn't that what Jesus said to the disciples? You will receive power. When? When the Holy Spirit comes upon you. He empowers us to obey God. He empowers us to serve God. Now, the question then is when and how did we get this power? Look at verse 3 again. God has given us what we need for a godly life. Look what it says. Through the full knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Who is Him? The full knowledge of Him. Him refers to Christ. He has given us what we need for godliness through the knowledge of Christ. Now, we talked about this some this morning, but I'll say it again. Here, when we're talking about the knowledge of Christ, we don't just mean gaining information about Him. When He talks about through the knowledge of Christ, He means the time when you came to know Jesus personally as Lord and Savior. The time when you came to know Jesus by experience. He's talking about your conversion. 
when you entered into a relationship with Jesus. And that's clear from the rest of the verse. Look what it says. His divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the full knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. The call Peter's talking about here is the call to salvation. It refers to God actually awakening faith in you and causing you to believe. This is not just an invitation, right? This is, this is the act of salvation when God actually reaches out by His Spirit and brings you to Himself in faith and repentance. And notice the end of verse 3. You were called to salvation by His own glory and excellence. That simply means this. God didn't call you into a saving relationship with His Son because of who you are or what you've done. It's not because of your glory and excellence that God's called you into a relationship with His Son. No, no. It's because of the glory and excellence of Christ. In other words, it's because of who Jesus is and what He's done that God has brought you into relationship with Himself. God saved you on the basis of who Christ is and what He has accomplished. How did you receive the power to live a godly life? Well, it came to you through your relationship with Jesus. Based on the person and work of His Son, God saved you, brought you to Himself in faith and repentance. You came to know Christ personally, and at that moment, the Holy Spirit of God took up residence in you. He came to be with you and in you forever. Listen, every true Christian has the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 9, But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit, you have what you need to live a godly life. I have always said that if God hadn't called me to preach, I'd love to be a paramedic and work on an ambulance. I'm an adrenaline junkie. I, I, I'd love that. One thing every paramedic can do is administer CPR. How do I know every paramedic can give CPR? Simple. You can't become a paramedic without knowing how to do CPR. Before they'll give you your paramedic license, you have to demonstrate not only that you know how to do it, but you have to actually show that you have the ability to do it. Listen, bottom line is this. If you don't know how to do CPR, I know you are not a paramedic. If you don't have the ability to live a godly life, I know that you are not a Christian. Why? Because you can't become a Christian without receiving the Holy Spirit who gives you the ability to live a godly life. So if you'd say, well, I know I'm supposed to live a godly life, I just can't. Well, you're not a Christian. If you're a Christian, you have what you need to live a godly life because the Scripture said God has already given it to you. Now, you may not want to live a godly life, and that opens a whole other can of worms. Bottom line, 
If you're a Christian, you have no excuse for not living a godly life. None. God has given you his spirit. And on top of that, he's given you his word. He's given you his church. God has given you, if you're born again, everything you need for a life of godliness. God has given you things to enable you to live a life devoted to him. And he wouldn't have given you what you need to live a godly life if he didn't intend for you to live a godly life. And that's going to become really clear as we look at the second reality regarding a godly life. It's in verse 4. And here it is. The promise, excuse me, the promises of God are aimed at producing a godly life. The promises of God are aimed at producing a godly life. The first thing you notice in verse 4 is the reality of promises made to the believer. You see what it says? For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises. By these. What is these? It's a reference to the end of verse 3, the glory and excellence of Christ. Okay, so here's the idea. Because of the glorious person of Jesus and what he's accomplished on our behalf, God has made promises to us. Right? God has made promises to us based on what Jesus has done. And he refers to those promises as precious and magnificent. Precious means of great worth, very costly. Magnificent means remarkable or beyond ordinary in degree. Some translations say very great. So what are these wonderful promises? Well, you'll notice Peter never actually mentions any specific promise. Now why is that? Why would he mention, you know, we have these great promises, but he doesn't list any of them? The reason is, because he's not concerned with the individual promises themselves. He's concerned with what the fulfillment of those promises accomplishes in the believer's life. The point is not for Peter to list all the promises. The point is for him to show you what it is God is accomplishing by fulfilling the promises he's made to you. In the middle of verse 4, you see those words, so that, that lets us know that what follows is called a purpose clause. So first we see the reality of the promises made to the believer. Here we see the purpose of the promises made to the believer. The purpose of the promises is to produce godliness in the believer. Watch what it says. By these he has granted to us his Precious and magnificent promises, so that, here's the purpose of those promises, by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Divine means that which is characteristic of God. So the divine nature means the nature of God. To be partakers of the divine nature means we receive a share of, or we take part in God's nature. Now, what do we mean when we talk about God's nature? We mean His characteristics and His attributes, right? 
the character of God and the attributes of God. That's what make up his nature. It's who he is. He's saying we're going to become like God in some way. We're going to share his character and attributes in some way. Now, let's be really careful here. He's not saying that through these promises we've been given, we will become God or become a God. No, he's saying we will, we will share certain of the characteristics of God. We'll become like God in some ways. What he's referring to is what we would normally think about becoming like Jesus. The believer will become like Jesus. Romans 8, 29. Because those whom God foreknew, he did also predestine to be conformed to the image of his son. That's an amazing verse. It means God has already determined the destiny of every single believer before they ever came to believe. His destiny for every single believer is that they would be like his son. It's predetermined, fixed. If you're a believer, that is what God has guaranteed is going to happen. But look, this is not just something that will happen in the future. Now, the process of you becoming like Christ won't be complete until Jesus comes back. We know that. It's only on the day the Lord steps out on the clouds to call his own. Only on that day will be fully and finally transformed in the image of Jesus. But... The moment you're born again, the moment the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you, you begin the process of being transformed into the image of Jesus. We call that process sanctification. Growing in holiness. Becoming more like Jesus. That begins when you first get saved. That's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, those who are in Christ are a what? New creation. It begins at conversion and is completed on the day Christ returns. Listen, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 1, 6. I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, he who began the work of making you like Jesus will finish that work on the day of Christ Jesus. God's already determined you will be like Jesus. Now, how is that connected to the promises? You become partakers of the divine nature, which means you become like Jesus. But what does that have to do with the promises? Here's the thing I want you to see. As God fulfills the promises he's made to the believer, the result is that the believer becomes more and more like Jesus. Let me give you one example. A promise we all love. For God is able to make all things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. We love that verse. But what's the purpose of that verse? Keep reading the next verse. For God is able to make all things work together 
for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. For those who God did foreknow, he did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. When God said he's able to make all things work together for good, what's the good he's talking about? You being like Jesus. The promise that God will make all things in your life, whether they're good or bad, painful or joyful, God will make all of it work together for your good. What he's saying is, I promise you that everything that happens in your life as a child of God will make you more like Jesus. See, the purpose of the promise, when, as God's fulfilling that promise, He's making you like Jesus. That's what Peter's saying. That's what the purpose of these promises are. Now, let's say it like this. God's promises to the believer result in godliness. As God fulfills them, it makes us more like Jesus. Now, every single aspect of Jesus' life was characterized by godliness. He demonstrated perfect devotion to his Father in all things. He pleased God in every possible way. God even said it twice out loud, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He said it at his baptism and on the Mount of Transfiguration. What God has made these promises to you and I for is so that we too can live a life of devotion, a life that pleases Him the way His Son did. And listen, it's not just someday off in the sweet by and by. His divine power has already given us what we need to begin to live that way now. Notice the end of verse 4. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. The word corruption could be defined as moral perversion. Do I have to tell you our society is morally corrupt? Why? Look, look at verse 4. Corruption is in the world by lust. In other words, the root of moral corruption or perversion is sinful desires. Evil, wicked desires are what lead a person and a, society, and a society to become morally corrupt. The lust for money is what makes a person or society greedy and materialistic. The lust to fulfill sexual desires in sinful ways is what makes a society sexually perverted. The lust to please and satisfy self above all others is what makes a person or a society self-centered and oblivious to the needs of others. But notice what Peter said. Believers have escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. That's past tense. We have already escaped. Now, it's true that when the world finally comes to ruin because of sin, by the awful judgment of God, it's true that on that day in the future, we will escape that awful judgment. That's true, but that's not what Peter's saying here. Peter's saying more than that. Peter's saying there's a sense in which believers have already escaped the corruption of the world. How? Godliness. Think with me. 
as you become more and more like Christ, you become less and less like the corrupt, sinful world all around you. As you grow in godliness, you're becoming less like the world. What are you doing? You're separating yourself from the corruption that's in the world. Are you with me? He says, you have these great precious promises so that as God brings them to fulfillment in your life, you steadily become more like Jesus and less like the corrupt world. What is it when a person becomes more like Jesus and less like the corrupt world? Godliness. Godliness. And what he's saying is that's why God has given you these promises. By fulfilling the promises God has made to you as a believer, you become more and more like Jesus and less and less like the world. In other words, you grow in godliness. That's the reason God made the promises to you in the first place. Now ask yourself a question. Why would God grant you the power to live godly? Why would God make these promises that are designed to produce godliness in your life? Why would he do that if he didn't actually expect you to live a godly life? Listen, godliness is not just something God wants from you. Godliness is something God expects from you. And even more than that, he has put measures in place to produce godliness in your life if you're a genuine believer. The Westminster Confession of Faith says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. What that means is, the grand purpose and goal of God creating humans is so that they could glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. Wonderful. Absolutely true. Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's why you were created. Now I want you to think about something. Godliness is the key to both of those the more you grow in godliness, the more you glorify God. The more you grow in godliness, the more you are able to enjoy of God. We talked about that this morning. Don't you get it? What's he saying there? What we're saying is, the more you grow in godliness, the more you fulfill the purpose for which God made you in the first place. God saved you so that you could do what He originally created mankind to do in the first place, to glorify and enjoy Him. That's why Peter says, look, I want you to know God's purpose for your life is that you be godly. Don't listen to these that tell you that godliness doesn't matter for the believer. I, I know there are those, and I've had discussions with them, who, who have children, and they'll say, oh, you know, She's been a Christian since she were a child, was a child, but she just never has lived for the Lord. She's grown now, and she's in the military. It's a pastor gentleman that I know was telling me about his daughter, who's 
grown, but years ago she made a profession of faith, so I, I know she's saved, even though she's never lived for Jesus in the last 35, 40 years. Where do people get this idea that as long as you believe in Jesus, godliness is optional? It doesn't come from the Bible. They think they can still live pretty much however they want to as long as they believe in Jesus. I hope you can see now that is absolutely false. God didn't set you free from sin's prison so you could keep living the way you did before. God saved you so you could live a godly life. God saved you to make you like his son. God saved you for the purpose of godliness. So, if God saved you for the purpose of godliness, don't ignore what God saved you for. Let me say that again. Don't ignore what God saved you for. God has already given you all that you need to live a godly life. He's given you His Spirit. He's given you His Word. He's given you His church. God hasn't left you to try to live a godly life in your own strength and by your own willpower. He knows you can't do that. But the Bible says His divine power has given you everything pertaining to a life of godliness. All of it. So that you're without excuse. Let's pray.